Hello, friends. Welcome to a special episode of Theology in the Raw. This episode is not part of the normal routine of uh, Theology in the Raw, which typically drops on Monday and Thursday. But in light of the reversal of Roe v. Wade, I really wanted to have a conversation about how Christians should think through uh, that reversal on a political level, on, a, on, a, on an ethical level. How should we think through things like abortion? And so um, I reached out to my friend, Dr. Scott Ray, because Scott is a resident expert in this area. He's been doing work on medical ethics for decades. Uh, Scott has a um, THM from Dallas Seminary, MA from USC, PhD from USC, postgraduate study from uh, the American Institute for Holy Land Studies. His primary interests are in medical ethics and business ethics, and he's the author of at least 10 books in ethics, including um, The Ethics of Commercial Surrogate Motherhood, uh, Moral Choices, Brave New Families, Biblical Ethics and Reproductive Technologies, and uh, Beyond Integrity, A Judeo-Christian Approach to Business Ethics, and many, many other books. Uh, Scott's become a friend over the years, and he is just super... um, just wise and sharp and thoughtful. He is um, uh, he is a dean of faculty at Talbot School of Theology and professor of philosophy and Christian ethics at Biola University. Also, I do want to mention that um, Scott and Sean McDowell co-host a really good podcast called Think Biblically. Think Biblically, and they do address Think, the, the question of abortion. They have an episode coming out, I believe, if it's not dropped yet, uh, on the Roe v. Wade decision. And if you go to Think Biblically, you will see lots of other really, really helpful things that uh, Scott and Sean address. So uh, please welcome back to the show the one and only Dr. Scott Ray. All right, hey friends, I'm here with uh, Dr. Scott Ray, um, whom I consider, um, well, I mean, for a while, somebody who I admired from a distance as a, an evangelical ethicist. And uh, over the last few years, of, I, I think can call you a friend, uh, which is really, it's always shocking when you read somebody's books for years and then now we have connected several times. So I reached out to you, Scott, short notice, said, hey, can you help us think through this Roe v. Wade thing? Because I'm getting ask a lot of questions. I've got a lot of thoughts. I don't know if they're good and accurate, um, but you're, this is kind of your area, especially kind of the, the public sphere of Christian ethics is a world you've been swimming in for decades. So what are your thoughts on the reversal of Roe v. Wade? You can go any direction you want, but how, how, how should Christians think yeah. through this? Yeah. The big question is where to start. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so maybe I'll start with uh, what I think is the obvious part good news about it is I think it was it was a very good day for the unborn when Roe v. Wade was reversed. Now, did it, you know, did it take away abortion rights? You know, the answer to that is clearly no. And you wouldn't know that from looking at a lot of the protesters that were out who claimed that you know, a woman's right over her own body had completely disappeared. And that's not that's not true. All the decision did was turn it back to the states, mm. take it out of the hands of the federal government and turn it back to the states. And so states, you know, I mean, most states were prepared for this one way or another. I mean, my state of California had already months ago declared itself a sanctuary state for abortion, uh, regardless of how the decision came down. But you know, r- roughly half the states will have 
nothing, nothing will change. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a few things might change. I mean, they might, there will be no residency requirement, for example, like there is in some states. Uh, some states will actually, you know, pay for women to travel mm-hmm. to their state for an abortion. Uh, companies in those states are now going public saying that they'll, you know, they'll pay for their employees to mm-hmm. go to a, a state if they, that allows it if they want to have an abortion. And about tw- about half the states have already indicated that they will have some sort of significant restrictions okay. on access to abortion. What exactly that's going to look like will will vary from state to state. Okay. For example, the law in Mississippi that was under it was the law under question that Roe v. Wade was was um, reviewing says that after fifty after fifteen weeks abortion would be pro, would be prohibited. And there are other states who have will have much tighter restrictions. But states, I think, will have to reflect the will of their voters. Uh, and we'll see. I think what, what the what the voters have have indicated, you know, in surveys that have been taken is that most most people, they're uncomfortable with either of the extremes, but, you know, complete abortion on demand mm-hmm. or, you know, a com- complete uh, restriction on abortion. And so most people have some sort of nuanced view. And I think what we what we will find is that as is characteristic of the arena of public policy, you'll, it, it'll be an area of negotiation, compromise and limited objectives mm-hmm. uh, where if you want, you know, if you if you want all the pie, you probably won't get any of it. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to take a decent slice of it, it may not be everything you want, mm-hmm. but you'll make significant progress. So okay. that's that that may be a hard thing for both of these polarized sides to come to grips with, yeah. because I think on, particularly on the pro-choice side, any deviation from, uh, you know, this uh, sort of abortion on demand is seen as betraying the cause. Mm. Okay. And I think increasingly the pro-life side is being seen in that way, too. Uh, but and my, my like sort of, you know, once you enter the realm of public policy and leave the realm strictly of morality, mm-hmm. then the, the idea of uh, extremes, I think, sort of goes out the window. Yeah, because yeah. It's, it's just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. We're in public policy. It, it, it is a realm of negotiation yeah. and not getting and normally not getting everything you want. And I, I would expect that in the states that have indicated that they're going to put restrictions okay. on access okay. to abortion. So even those states, I would assume they would be red states. Um, e- even those red states aren't probably won't categorically 100% make all forms of abortion illegal. They might make exceptions if the health of the mother is at, at stake or maybe rape or incest. I know those are very... Um, the percentages are extremely low there, but that they might still have some e- exceptions like that. I I think you know there may be a couple states that are exceptions to this. I think it will be difficult to get anything enacted enacted into law mm-hmm. that doesn't have some exception for sexual assault mm-hmm. and some exception for when the mother's life is genuinely endangered, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like an ectopic pregnancy, for example, mm-hmm. where the you know the the embryo implants in the fallopian tube and not the uterus. Mm-hmm. You don't take care of that really quickly. It's a double catastrophe because the mother's going to die and the baby's going to die also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so normally what the, what they will do is just snip a little 
incision in the fallopian tube allow the embryo to to come out and it's just absorbed into the body as a as a quote natural miscarriage okay uh, so mm-hmm. it's a, i mean it's an induced miscarriage to be sure uh, but if you don't do that you lose you lose everything okay in that and there are other there are other cases they're becoming more rare i think because we're just getting a lot better at managing really problem pregnancies okay so the number of cases where the mother's life outside of ectopic pregnancies where the mother's life is genuinely endangered are not it's not not nearly the same as it was in 1973 when roe v wade was passed mm, okay and, it, and for myself if i were a pro-choice advocate which i'm not uh, but if I were a pro-choice advocate, I would I would admit that uh, most partial partial birth abortions ought to be outlawed. Uh, those those are I mean, in my view, those are heinous mm. uh, violations of the baby's right to life. Mm. Uh, and they, the pro-choice movement gains nothing, in my view, by holding the line so hard yeah. against third trimester abortions. Yeah. Because it's not like it's not like the pregnant woman has been caught off guard that she's pregnant, you know. By that time, you know, she's had plenty of time to process this mm-hmm. uh, and to make arrangements. The the one thing that really, um, and you know, we're dealing we're dealing with something that's been so highly politicized. It, it just makes it it just so hinders an actual discussion conversation. But it, from the little I've looked into it. Um, it's not just like a a religious ethical perspective that would be um, pro pro life, but um, it seems like most. I mean, correct and please correct me if I'm wrong. I, I read it. I read a survey the, the, the other day that if you ask the average biologist, you know, when does life begin for mammals? <laughs> I mean. I think a ninety percent or something said at, at, at conception um, by by just the standard definition of life. Now, um, is that I mean, or, or somebody says no, life doesn't begin at conception. Then what's the rationale for determining when life begins? Is it something like when they can breathe on their own, when they're independent of their mother, when there there's a heartbeat? But he, all of these are terribly inconsistent. Um, I mean, if if you. Yeah, What's the best are. argument for the pro-choice side? Yeah, and I, I don't. Let me let me let me sharpen the question. Okay, a bit, if I might, because I think if you frame it in terms of when does life begin, then it's a it's a biological scientific one. Okay, and you don't have any other option but to say life begins at conception because okay. the embryo is alive and it's fully human, right? Because it's got a full you know, complement of human DNA. It has human parents. I mean, that's the definition of a human being biologically, is if it's alive and if it has human parents. Okay. So, hey, hey, well, real quick, everything you're saying there, an evolutionary biologist who's not religious, who doesn't have a dog in the fight, that's your. Are you just repeating what a standard biology? You're not making an argument here. You're, this is just what. No, the I mean, science. that's just a fact. Okay. I mean, look any look at any textbook of embryology, and it'll say the same thing. Okay. Uh, so the, the question we're really asking is when do you have a person right. in the moral sort of metaphysical sense? Okay. And there, that's a, that's a different question. Now, for myself, 
uh, I am, I'm skeptical of anybody who distinguishes between a human being and a person. Yes. Because I think that's a dangerous thing to do. And lots of people have done that to, you know, very harmful, if not catastrophic effects on human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, in Nazi Germany, for example, Jew, uh, Jews, gypsies, the mentally handicapped mm-hmm. were considered human beings, but not full persons. And some of the arguments for uh, longstanding abortion rights, not to mention euthanasia and assisted suicide, make that same distinction between okay. a human being and a person. Um, and, and I think then, then you have to ask yourself now, on what on what basis do we decide yes. when somebody is actually a person? Right. And usually, usually it's not along that continuum between pregnancy and birth. Because I think most people admit that those are arbitrary restrictions, I mean, arbitrary guidelines. For example, to say that that the child is a person once he or she is viable to survive outside the womb, well, that's really nothing, nothing more than, one, a change of location, and it's a commentary on medical technology, not any, not any commentary on what kind of a thing the unborn child is. Hmm. And you know, viability has changed significantly since 1973. Hmm. You know, and I mean, it was at the end of the second trimester in 1973. Well, we've got, you know, babies in neonatal intensive care units at 22 weeks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that are, you know, have a long way to go, but are alive and surviving outside the mother's body. Now, we also ought to, ought to point out that, uh, you know, any baby born at 22 to 26 weeks goes from a natural life support system to an artificial one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's not, it's a, so the category itself is even misleading because they don't, you know, they are not capable of surviving independent of every technological substitute we have for the mother's body. Yeah. So but that, even, yeah, go ahead. that just seems so, I mean, so, and I always want to take whatever arguments we made and say, okay, is this going to be an absolute principle? So any human being, who's dependent upon another human to live, we can end the life of that human being for whatever reason like that. That gets a little bit eugenics on me. There. I mean, well, yeah. And you I mean, think about it, you know, I, I won't ask you, but, I, but if you had your wife on here, uh, who's actually carried several children, mm-hmm. uh, I think she would tell you that there's only a, a very slight degree of difference in the degree of dependence Mm. between a child she was carrying in the womb and a newborn right, yeah, that she's right. holding in her arms. You know, that's, 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 that's just, that's not a huge difference. Right. Uh, right. So anyway, what, what most pro-choice advocates will do, they do one of two things. One is they will concede that you have a person and make, and then make the argument that women still should have the right to take the lives of their full person unborn children. Based on, um, based on the, the rights of the rights of a woman over her own body, her own bodily integrity, trumping, um, the life of the unborn child. I just, I, I just think that really does not help the pro-choice cause like the, the irration, like, because it came from your, it's not some appendage, like it's, it's an independent, or it, let's just say, let's just say well, it is a not, human life. I mean, what they're trying to do is to, to take seriously what, 
you know, ultrasound and especially 4D ultrasound mm-hmm. technology is giving us today. It's making it more and more difficult to look at the, the, the unborn child in the womb and say that this is not a person, mm-hmm. to say that this is a clump of cells or a piece of tissue. That's just that's a much harder argument to make. And so the, I think the pro-choice movement has recognized and and understandably so that they are better off not making the argument at all mm-hmm. about what kind of a thing the unborn child is and instead focus on the, the woman's rights okay. of bodily integrity and autonomy. So is that why so much rhetoric is about women's rights and everything? It, it, is it, Because if they dig into the real heart of the question of life and personhood, they don't have much there. Is that yeah. fair to say? Uh, I think that is fair to say. And it, and it turns out, in my view, that uh, medical technology, maybe even more so than uh, morality, philosophy, and theology, has helped change the narrative on mm-hmm. this more than anything else. Okay. The other way they come at it is to say it's not a, it's not a medical thing. It's a philosophical thing. And per, you are a person when you are able to perform a certain set of, you know, non-negotiable sort of look, the, the four functions mm-hmm. that we say are crucial to being a human person. So things like uh, self-consciousness, uh, awareness of one's environment, um, the ability to have some sort of relational connection, um, some maybe maybe a moderate sort of elementary form of rationality. Um, it's 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 what I, the way I summarize it is, is I call it it's a look in the mirror test, mm-hmm. where you can look in the mirror and recognize that hey that's me, yeah I got I recognize myself. Okay. So the, so it's more it's a functional view of what a person is. Okay. And of course, the difficulty with that is that uh, people who are in reversible comas, uh, people who are under general anesthesia, uh, mm-hmm. some people I know who are in a very deep sleep, you know, none of those things apply. Mm-hmm. And so you, you just re- you run aground when you start digging a little deeper. So the, the pro-choice person will say, well, those, you know, the loss of those functions in those situations is only temporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's true of the unborn child too. Hmm. In, in fact, it's perfectly normal for the unborn child not to have those functions at particular oh, yeah. stages of maturity. We, in fact, nobody's surprised by that. We expect yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and so, I think, you know, in my view, putting the definition of personhood on a functional basis is doomed to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what do you say about, um, I'm trying to think of other things I've heard to say kind of around this issue. Like if you outlaw abortion, it's going to lead to a lot of back alley abortions. It's going to, there's going to be a whole unintended negative effect that's going to come from this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there any validity to that? I, I don't, uh, you know, there, there may be some anecdotal things mm-hmm. that, that we'll see. Um, but you know, if you look back statistically before 1973, vast majority of abortions that were done were done by licensed physicians in licensed facilities. They were just done illegally. Hmm. So the, 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 this, this idea that there were, you know, huge numbers of back alley abortions with un, unsanitary, untrained, unlicensed physicians performing them, I think is a bit of an urban legend. Okay. Uh, now there were some, there, there were some that were done that way. 
Um, but to, to pretend that that's the norm that we'll go back to, I think is there's there's no there's no basis on which to say that. Okay. There, there's one another thing that comes up that does resonate with me, you know, quite a bit. That you know, some the pushback is some Christians, conservative Christians, are so focused on ending abortion, but they're not focused on the more structural environments that are fostering. Um, abortion. And, and the one that really gets me is I, I read somewhere, I, I, don't, I say that a lot, I read somewhere, but I really did that. And I, okay, so it was something like 20 to 30% of women who have had an abortion were raised in an v- extremely conservative religious environment where getting a secret abortion was chosen because of the profound shame and lack of grace and forgiveness that would have came about because of the religious environment. And that's where I'm like, oh yeah, that that's on us. Doesn't justify the abortion, but yeah, can it not be a both and? There are certain environmental things that we should address while also saying no to abortion. It's kind of my two cents on that kind of environmental. Well, that is, that is absolutely right. And I admit what's been a little disturbing to me to see the reactions of some, you know, some in the Christian community who are pro-life is there's been a lot of dancing in the end zone um, mm. and a lot, a lot of spike in football yeah. uh, and celebrating the win when we recognize that this, though this was a win, uh, it's not the whole thing because the goal is mm. to make abortion not, not illegal, mm. but to make it unthinkable. Mm. That's the goal. And to do that, you can't do that without attending to these these other things uh, you have to attend to you know desperate women mm-hmm. uh, who are in dire straits you have to attend to people who were raised in you know in various forms of honor shame cultures mm-hmm. where this brings profound disgrace on the family um, you know and you, you you have to take into account that uh, you have you know you have terrible situations that women find themselves in where, you know, teenagers are pregnant and watching the trajectory of their life sort of dramatically change. This is uh, on Monday. uh, There was a front page piece in the Los Angeles Times. There was a challenge to churches and other religious pro-life religious groups. And and the the question they put, it was the headline said, will churches now help women? Ah. And I think they raised the right question. Huh. I don't often agree with what's in the Los Angeles <laughs> Times, but I think I think they were spot on huh. on this because it, you know it's one thing to celebrate that the unborn had now have greater protections. It's another thing to make sure that the conditions that drive women to get yes. abortion, yes, the things that we're actually giving attention to, mm-hmm. and that, in my view, is the bigger part of the battle. Mm-hmm. And that's that can't making abortion unthinkable can't be done without giving attention to these other systemic things. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll get on board with providing, you know, b- b- better subsidies for childcare, better childcare options, you know, better care for, for pregnant women, more adoption opportunities. You know, maybe churches will actually set up uh, ministries where they will house and fund unwed mothers who have unwanted pregnancies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe the churches will finally put their money where their mouth is yeah. and 
recognize that we we have to we have to dig into these you know to these conditions that are driving women to get abortions. I this is one thing I appreciate about Andy Stanley and his church in Atlanta. You know they've had a ministry for some time, uh, which you know they you know a couple hundred women that I'm aware that I'm aware of at last count. Uh, they had sort of taken under their under their wings and provided financial support, uh, provided housing, you know, wh- whatever their needs were through their pregnancy and then helped facilitate uh, adoption proceedings. Hmm. That's uh, and I think that's, I think that's right. That's, yeah. um, that's this, this is this is def- this is a step up your game moment for our churches. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's good. And it, it, that's have to be a both both and I, and I guess that I have seen and I I, I try not to pay too close attention to the, all the culture war stuff because it just kind of drives you crazy and is distracting. But I, I guess I have seen a little bit some you know Christians who don't want to be that right wing conservative Christian. They have maybe more progressive values, and yet they're still not on the pro choice side. They're kind of like if you ask them in private, like yeah, I'm still kind of opposed to abortion. But they're almost like so worried about being seen as a right wing Christian that there's almost no like concern there. And yet they'll be very concerned about justice here, justice there. To me, I'm like, I, I just hard. Is it is this too strong for me to say? Like, I, it's hard for me to take anybody seriously in their justice mantra when this is the epitome of injustice, the most innocent form of a human to say out of, for whatever reason, we're going to end the life of, of, of that human. That just seems to be like, if you care about justice at all, this should, should be at the front of those low hanging justice fruit. So for people who are justice, 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 I don't want to be that fundamentalist Christian, but privately, yeah, I'm kind of against abortion, but let's only talk about the environmental stuff leading to it. It's like, well, no, can't we do it all? Like, are you that scared of being targeted as some tribal, you know, right winger or something. Have you seen that kind of hesitation? Okay. I don't know. It's just kind of frustrating to me, but well, that's gotten worse in the last five days. Yeah. Um, decision was handed down. I mean, I felt for a long time that even in Christian circles that are so concerned with justice and rightly so yeah, that, you know, where are the unborn? You know, the unborn, they never get included in the marginalized mm. and the oppressed mm. yet. They are easily the most vulnerable among us. Yes. Easily, uh, and but yet, you know, the, the the fate of the unborn is not a cool justice cause. <laughs> Why is that? It, just because it's become such a right wing talking point, and most people that are justice oriented grew up in that environment. They don't want to be of that anymore. Or, I mean, well, there's some yeah, some people are reacting to that, um, but I, I think some you know there there is a bit of, there is a part of the justice movement that I think even in Christian circles is is somewhat captive to cultural trends. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not, it's just, you're not part of the cool kids mm-hmm. if you have strong feelings about abortion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just, you don't fit in the justice world, you know, unless you, you know, unless it's all about, you know, the, the vulnerable women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is in part about the vulnerable women. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the unborn are by far the more vulnerable group. Right, right, right. Yet, they're, you know, Mom's the word on the unborn. <laughs> does anybody ever, does a question of motivation ever come up? Like if someone says, you know, I'm, I'm pro-choice, you know, women can do whatever they want with their body. They can get an abortion. I'm like, what if a woman 
had a, a white woman had a black boyfriend got pregnant and says, Oh, I don't want to have a black baby. I'm going to kill it. Or what if somebody, um, what if somebody found out they're having a daughter and they're like, oh, I don't want daughters. They're not as valuable as men. I'm going to kill this because it's a daughter. Does, does that ever come up? And I mean, I don't know how theoretical that is or real, but it's like, it can be at least I'd like, whether you say abortion is right or wrong, say, well, is, does the motivation play a role here? Because that seems kind of anti-women to say I'm going to kill a female fetus, but not a male. I mean, I don't know. Well, certainly the mo- the motive matters in in the moral assessment of it. Sure. And in sure. my view, the uh, the the phenomena of sex selection abortion is the dirty little secret of the abortion industry. Huh. And that's been going on, Preston, since the 1960s. And it was an integral part of efforts at population control in the 1960s and 70s. And they would, you know, throughout the developing world, funded by, you know, the, the Ford Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation and all the, all the folks that funded Planned Parenthood, uh, the way to control population in the developing world was to, I mean, they had mo- mobile ultrasounds and mobile you know, mobile abortion units. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could get abortions done. If the ultrasound indicated there was a girl, mm-hmm. you didn't pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And for some couples, that would happen over and over again because they wanted to keep trying until they got a boy. And if they had all these girls, then, mm-hmm. you know, what happened? Our population control efforts went out the window. Wow. But this was, this turned out to be, it's well documented. This was one of the primary means to foster controlling explosive population growth in the developing world in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and I, I mean, I've heard other people refer to this as, you know, Planned Parenthood's original sin, hmm. which I think there's something there's something to that. Uh, and it was all based on gender. Was it in the history of Planned Parenthood? There was some kind of eugenics background that's really eerie. Is that? Margaret Sanger, who founded Planned Parenthood in the 1920s, uh, was an unabashed advocate, as were most intellectuals in the 20s, from around, around the turn of the 20th century, unabashed proponent of eugenics. Golly. And, it, you know, eugenics, actually, eugenics didn't get a bad name until World War II, huh. you know, until the Nazis took it way off the rails. Um, but, you know, it, it had a very respectable origin and history for a long time, in the you know highest intellectual circles in Europe and the United States, mm-hmm. but you you even see it kind of implied in some of the rhetoric today. Of the few interviews I I've watched this week, there was one lady I don't even remember her name, but I shouldn't laugh. It was just it was so like, do you you should go listen to yourself? Like she was saying, really a passion about abortion as a woman's rights. She's like, I have family members and look, I have a, a, like a niece that had down syndrome and it's really hard to raise. And, and another person, she starts listening to these like people with mental disabilities in the context of women should be able to get an abortion. I'm like, Oh my word. Like that's said out loud. And people are like, yeah, yeah. Green. I'm like, this is, biz- this is eerie. I mean, so it doesn't seem like it's gone away. Maybe, maybe it's just more buried in the <laughs> logic of some people. I don't know that that yeah. was, yeah, the, the ironic part is that, you know, we're supposed to be celebrating diversity more than ever. Yeah. But that diversity doesn't include people with, you know, genetic and, you know, other kinds of challenges. Hmm. I know in some, you know, in some parts of the world, they, they brag about having, 
eliminate a Down syndrome. Well, I think, you know, if you, if you give me the power to eliminate all the people who have a certain disease, I can eliminate that disease pretty easily. You know, there's no particular virtue in that. And I remember, re, I can't remember where I read it, but, you know, to quote the scripture, I, someone has said somewhere um, <laughs> that, you know, if, 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 if you came into, like, she, this pro-choice advocate caught herself going to the grocery store and saw a woman with a Down syndrome child in their grocery cart. And she caught herself thinking to herself, thankfully she didn't say it out loud, but thinking to herself, you know, don't you know you could have aborted that pregnancy? And, and thankfully she caught herself and it was sort of a gasp moment. You know, I said, I, I can't believe I actually thought that. You know, I'm glad I didn't say it out loud, but I can't believe I actually thought that. Um, wow. and again, that's, wow. that's sort of the other side of this, you know, functional view of a human person, which why which it's a good reason why we ought to reject it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question, Scott, just a general, how, how do you think Christians should process this decision? Like what is the Christian response to the reversal of Roe v. Wade? Well, I think one is, I think we have to recognize that you know, most people don't think of this in terms of the extremes. Hmm. Most people have, they have, they have a, a bit more nuanced view of it than I think is being widely presented. Uh, certainly than it's being presented in the various protests that are, that are being done. Um, and I think, I think there's, there's definite cause for celebration. I think the unborn are better off today than they were a week ago. Um, and I think that the change in the law will have educational value, even if even if nothing on the ground actually changes. Mm-hmm. That was the big takeaway from Roe v. Wade being passed, the educational value mm-hmm. that they had about the moral acceptability of abortion. I think was the big pro-choice benefit from Roe v. Wade being passed. I, my hope is that the overturning of that will cause a similar type of educational impact. But I think, you know, I think it's one, one thing to, to celebrate that the unborn are, are safer today. Um, I think I, you know, I'd recognize that, you know, the jury's still out on what various states are going to do and what those laws are going to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third, you know, we have, we, we cannot forget pregnant, desperate mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. in the process. Because they are, you know, however we wait those conflicting interests, you know, they, they have a place at the table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, their needs deserve to be seriously considered. And the church has got to step up its game in ministering and serving to, you know, there are a lot of women who are feeling a lot more desperate today than they were a week ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do, do, you, do you think that this will reduce the number of abortions or is it are you like ah it's it's hard to tell i mean because people could just be flocking to blue states to get the abortion they would have had or do you think no at the end of the day it probably will reduce the number i mean i think at the end of the day it probably will reduce the number how much i think the jury's still out on that yeah um you know i mean i don't i don't agree with the way the state of texas passed their law mm-hmm. uh the way they enforced it Hmm. With law, with law enforcement basically opting out hmm. of enforcement, I think that was a terrible thing. But the number of abortions 
was reduced dramatically Hmm. in the state of Texas. Now, I suspect that a lot of women who wanted abortions in Texas traveled to Hmm. New Mexico or, you know, somewhere else. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's hard. uh, It's hard to say. And it may actually be hard to measure. Okay. we yeah. won't be able to we we won't be able to to track women who go out of state and privacy right. laws probably prohibit that anyway. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, Scott, thanks so much for your grace and your wisdom. Um, that's super helpful, super informative, and I'm sure it was helpful for our audience to at least in agreement, disagreement. Maybe there's some things said that people want to chase down further. So yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. So uh, many blessings to you and the whole Dal- Talbot Biola family down there. Appreciate that. Thanks, Preston. All right. God bless.